paint a picture of my grandmother. Um, my parents separated when I was three, and at that time, you know, my mom was a flight attendant, and my dad was traveling the world, starting his business. And because of that, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents. And my grandmother was like my mother to me. And mentioning H. P. Blavatsky a lot, my grandmother looked like her, but with blonde hair and had a Kathleen Turner voice. On top of that, this is a woman that was not afraid to share her opinion. Her mother was in the Eastern Star, and she was really into witchcraft, demonology, loved Aleister Crowley, very much into the philosophical aspects of the occult, but hated the Catholic Church. <laughs> and from the time I was like five, you know, at dinner, family dinner, she'd be talking about how all, they're all pedophiles and thieves and that the Catholic Church is corrupt and to keep an open mind and that religion is, is evil and that it's all about like learning the secrets. My grandmother knew that I was a very old soul. Um, since I was little, I would dream things. They would come true. My mom's not spiritual at all, so when I tell her these things, it scared her. But my grandmother really nurtured this gift within me. And she had this oracle card deck. We used to sit at her kitchen table and take the deck and put all the cards face down, and I'd pull them up one at a time, and she'd ask me how it made me feel. And that's what taught me to use my intuition to kind of divine and read things and people from this mysterious oracle card deck. So my grandmother was really my greatest teacher and my initiator into the mysteries. And um, ironically, she passed away because her heart gave out during heart surgery. And um, it's weird that my whole life path would be tied to what she taught me as a child and also rooted in the heart. So it feels like this really meta poetry for the way things played out. And, you know, she was just a unique character, one of a kind. I got turned on to Aldous Huxley because of her. She was reading 2001, A Space Odyssey and A Clockwork Orange and exposing me to this. Like, I'm, the picture I'm painting, I was very little. You know, my grandmother died when I was 13, so I'm like eight years old. She's teaching me how to read oracle cards, young and exposing me to these things. Um, she, I think, wouldn't be surprised at all because when you look back to Brave New World, not too far from where we're at, it's, uh, it's weird looking back to the past and even thinking back then in the 60s, 50s, 30s, 20s, where we're at now. It's the byproduct of many things. Did we create this? Did we predict this? Did the prediction make what has been created? How malleable is thought? How malleable is what we intend or create? Again, are we the reader and the writer? The creator and creation? It's a paradox. I'm Jim Perry, and you are listening to Euphemet, a show about the unknown and our relationship to it. On this edition, occultist, author, oracle, Jen Sodini, takes us on a journey of a lifetime, a mystical excursion to Mount Kailash, a millennia of lore and legend, and the struggle for survival, for transformation. Manhattan, I'm with Jin Sodini, who has recently returned from an adventure she will never forget. But midday here in Chinatown, all you can remember, all you can hear, is the last blaring horn, the throng of local vendors, and perturbed tourists getting off the wrong subway stop. However, Jen and I know exactly where we are and what we are doing here. She's taking me to have my aura read for the first time, a mystic icebreaker, if you will, 
for the tale she has in store for me later today. A palate cleanser of sorts for the manic hustle and bustle between the city alleys and my ears. One of the things that was so funny when I got to Tibet, too, was I actually didn't really know what to expect, but our first stop was in Lhasa. And in Lhasa, there are, like, feral Lhasa apsas running around. So, What's a Lhasa apsa? Is it like a shih tzu? Like oh, one of, really? Like a little foo-foo dog. And they're just running around? Yeah. <laughs> so they're all over. So, it's, you know, you're used to seeing a street dog that's, like, maybe a little more beat up or, like, a pit bull. All throughout Tibet, they're, like, the most beautiful creatures you'd imagine seeing in a pet shop. And they're just running around. So where are we going right now? We are going to Magic Jewelry in Chinatown to get our aura photos done. Well, I'm excited. I've never done this before. And these pictures look awesome, like something off an indie album cover, right? <laughs> <laughs> totally my profile picture. Yes. Gonna... We're instructed by a shopkeeper to find our way to a straight back chair between two short room dividers, like a test stall at the DMV. I'm to sit, palms outstretched over some sort of magnetic sensors on the chair's arms, and stay still, look forward, and allow the vintage Aura camera to capture my essence. It reminds me of the speed sensor guns highway patrolmen lurch around with, yet affixed to an almost body-like frame. It's a bit Johnny number 5, and albeit slightly distracting to an uninitiate, it's quick, painless, kind of fun. And uh, put my hands here on these, these pads. We retrieve our Polaroid-like photos from the adjacent counter and receive a thorough breakdown from our shopkeeper, more a luminary or mediator of insightful aura information. She breaks down the challenges, windfalls, physical and mental dispositions for a three-week period. Past, future, present. Seemingly, the floating colors depicted in our photo highlight some pertinent information. General enough, but spot on. That was so much fun. <laughs> and so, like, sort of, it was like affirmation. Yeah. Because so much of that was like, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Even where she said you had pain? Uh, yeah. Yeah, like my neck and stuff like that. She yeah. said that, right? Yeah. Yeah, my neck is always like all fucked up when I'm doing this stuff. Whoa. So I love the name of that place too, Magic Jewelry, yeah. right? <laughs> Can you explain what's going on here and what, what, did, she, what did she tell you about? Well, the funny thing about my photo in particular is that our photos were so similar. So as I'm saying this, it's very in alignment with how your photo came out. So you and I both have a lot of indigo energy, which means that we're very sensitive and are in tune to our feelings and emotions and, uh, you know, into our intuitive space. But there's a lot of orange and red happening. So the orange, she said... Um, means that there's going to be a little more calm coming in but the red that's ever present now means there's like busyness happening and we're both working a lot on a lot of our career there's a little bit of yellow and she said that that means that I really love my career so you know if it was a matter of me having romantic love I'd imagine that the color would be more pink or purpley or even green because green is also the heart chakra but it makes sense because a lot of what I'm focused on right now is career. So that yellow and orangey and red energy is very grounding. 
And before we came in, I actually predicted a lot of yellow and red energy. But it's what blows my mind about all this stuff is that the Vedas predate the Bible, right? And the Vedas are these texts that are thousands and thousands of years old, and they're talking about the chakra systems. And it's like, basically, for those who have seen Doctor Strange, <laughs> the scene where the Ancient One is saying it's just programming, and these are the ways to access deeper levels of programming. But this has been talked about for thousands of years in these ancient traditions. Now we're in this modern world, like, blown away by an aura photograph. And it's like masters of thousands of years gone by are like, eh. Who needs the photo? I can see it. <laughs> right? Yeah. Dr. Strange, great documentary. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, part of why I wanted to go on this crazy trip that I went on this summer, I had just watched Dr. Strange, and I'm like, oh my god, I need to go to Kamartage. I need to find this place. So that was a big reason why I agreed. I didn't even know I was agreeing to go to a holy mountain that, you know, <laughs> like one of the most sacred sites in the world. So... Yeah. yeah, that all happened through divine synchronicity because um, I have a friend named Dr. Nitin Ron. He had invited me to his birthday party. I went to his birthday party a few months back with a couple that I'm friends with, and they were talking about this trip that they were going on through Nepal and Tibet. And I just kind of injected myself into the conversation. This sounds amazing. Is there room for anybody else? Can I come? <laughs> And Nitin said, uh, yeah, there might be space for one left. Are you sure you want to go? Well, I'll tell you, you know, are you sure? This would be great to have you there. And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm sure. I want to go. I don't, I'm, sign me up. Fine. <laughs> so I invited myself to the trip. And then I get looped into the email chain with our fellow travelers. And I come to find out our itinerary and what I signed up for. And it was honestly the most humbling experience I've ever had in my entire life. <laughs> like no no way to have prepared or to have even um remotely guessed how it would have played out the way it played out because it was like something from a movie next on euphemet we begin our journey and follow the path to enlightenment up up without air to breathe we climb with jen to find the sacred mountain So the journey begins in Kathmandu. And arriving into Kathmandu was really, really incredible. It's stepping into chaos. There's not very many uh, traffic lights, if any. And, you know, cars are just driving like maniacs. There's 10 people on one motorcycle. Uh, dust everywhere, the road is falling apart, but then in the midst of it there are the most beautiful people you can imagine wearing these bright colors like Aurora painting. So we arrive and our tour was organized. Uh, actually, we wound up, I come to find, joining a tour that had been organized beforehand by a German man. So actually, I had jumped onto this tour thinking that I was jumping on something that Nitten had organized, which he did, but Nitten actually jumped on the Germans' tour. (laughs) 
So when we get to Kathmandu um, and get to our hotel, we have our kind of uh, welcome and meet everybody. So uh, we arrive, meet the German. The German happens to be close in age to me, and we bonded and connected. So we're really lucky to have Nitten as part of this tour group because he's a doctor and he's very particular and he made no ifs, ands, or buts about it that altitude sickness is very serious and it's something that we need to take serious and prepare for as soon as we arrive in Nepal. So he had us begin taking this diuretic called Diamox, which helps with high altitude sickness because altitude sickness, in a worst case scenario, you can go into cerebral edema, which causes the brain to swell, or you could wind up having a stroke and die. There's all these things that it's very serious to undertake this journey. You need to get these injections of this steroid called DEX. This is basically an injection that you take in the event that you get altitude sickness. So if that happens to you on the mountain, it basically buys you time to get to a lower altitude so your brain will stop swelling. So the German, I say, okay, fine, we'll go get them tomorrow, I promise. So we take, um, in Kathmandu, they have these buses that you can jump on and off. And basically there's a kid hanging out of the side of the window with money and you jump on the bus and you're just crammed in, sitting in. So we take one of them to a hospital in Kathmandu to get these injections of DEX. The total winds up being 999 Nepali rupees. And being somebody that's fascinated with numerology, I'm like, huh, I wonder how this will bode for the rest of the trip, 999. So we get our supplies and then the next day I head to Lhasa with the majority of the group but the German and his son stay behind. So we get to Lhasa and the first day there we uh, walked around Barkor Square which is basically this beautiful monastery surrounded by shopping centers. So people will come to pay respects to this monastery and do Kora around it three times but you're surrounded with all sorts of shops where you can get Tibetan wares such as jackets, jewelry, whatever else. But this place I didn't even realize, um, you know, because of the Chinese occupation of Tibet, a lot of monks will go here and they'll perform what's called like a divine emulation, where they'll light themselves in fire and protest. So this has actually happened a lot there and you can feel this intense energy from it. So we have our first day in Lhasa, and then the next day um, the German comes, and we all get to go explore more through Lhasa. We go to Patala Palace, we do different, um, you know, kind of adventures. And then that evening, him and I took off and went back to Barkor Square. And he wanted to do prostrations in the temple because it's very, it's an act of respect and one in Rome, right? So I had never done a prostration before and I was watching him and he tried to teach me. A lovely Tibetan woman offered me up her mat and they have these um, handles that you can put on your hands so that you can slide. Because basically, for someone who doesn't know what a prostration is, it's basically like a spiritual burpee. <laughs> so you're doing a burpee and a mantra and a prayer. So this woman teaches me how to do it and offers me up her mat. And I'm just so taken with her that you know, the, the people of Tibet don't have a lot of money, so I, I offered her something, and it touched her so much. She gave me one of the bracelets on her wrist and gave it to me as something to carry for luck, and that was such a beautiful, beautiful moment for me. And uh, 
that's really when magic started to happen and speed up. So from Lhasa, we journey to Shigatse. Shigatse is another really interesting town, but your comfort zone starts to get challenged because you are, it's so foreign and so different. Um, it was, it was shocking to me because you're in this beautifully overwhelming space that is such sacred spiritual land and the Himalayas are so majestic and lovely and the Tibetan people are so spiritual and still devout and just kind and warm and friendly and then the juxtaposition between all of that and then this like military occupation is very strange so you start a lot of emotions start to come up because you just feel so much compassion for these people this is something that we've opted into right this is a journey that we've paid to go on that we're pilgrims coming here we can leave and go back home to comfort the people that live there are in this and there's no way out so from Shigatse, we move on to Saga. From Saga, we move on before Kailash. There is a lake uh, called Lake Manasovar, and they say that if you do a holy dip in this lake, it's very sacred. You know, this lake is another very sacred site for like Hindus and Buddhists. So we got to spend a night in a mud hut on the lake. And that night that we were there, the family that owned the mud hut, this is a beautiful Tibetan family, and they had three little girls. So I bond with the little girls, and the night that we're there, it's a lightning storm. So sitting out in the lightning storm on the sacred lake, and then having these little adorable Tibetan children, and then, you know, bonding with my new friend, and learning and absorbing everything, was just one of the most profound experiences of my life. Um, the day after that, we had our test Quora because where the mud hut that we were staying was, there's a monastery behind it that's pretty much a, a pretty big hike to get up to the top of. So they wanted all of us to put our backpacks on, test how we feel with the altitude. So we do this test and feel pretty okay. I'm like, all right, I think I can do this mountain. For the most part, out of the 20 travelers and I, we, we all were doing pretty good. So we felt confident that by the time we got to the mountain, it would be good. So finally, the mountain comes. So when we arrive, this mountain, it does not feel of this earth because the Himalayas are all different kind of tones of brown, earthy texture, um, like softness. Kailash is black. It looks like a gigantic black pyramid that's from outer space. When you start to get near it, it there's this humming that it gives off. It is a very, very low frequency. You can feel it's just like this wom, wom, wom. I'm walking alone and uh, all of these things start to come up where it feels very dreamy. It feels like I'm being shown 
parts of my path that led me there and the synchronicity of why and what it what it's all kind of coming to fruition and I feel this rising in me right halfway through the first day I wind up running into the German and they ask me to walk with them and I wind up walking with them and the rain starts and we think that we're lost and we find a tea house to sit in and I'll backtrack by also saying that throughout Nepal throughout Tibet and even Bhutan is which was the last place that we went on our journey the swastika is everywhere because to them the swastika is the sacred symbol of creation so we get into this tea house that's embroidered with a gigantic swastika. <laughs> like, this is just such a trip. It's so strange for Westerners because it's been subverted and it is associated with such evil. But in the East, it's associated with luck and creation. So basically, you know, the Germans during that time took creation and flipped it on its side. I digress. So we hang out in the tea house to wait for the rain, thinking that we're lost, thinking that the day is just, oh man, is it ever going to end? And as the rain parts, actually, the place that we were staying was right across from the tea house. So the day wraps up, go to sleep, don't really get too great of a sleep, but, you know, wake up in the morning ready for day two. And they prepared us by saying, like, this is the heartbreak day. This is going to be the hardest thing that you ever do in your life. I hope you realize this. This is no joke. I'm like, oh, boy. <laughs> Here we go. So the German and I decided to walk together. And because I got close with his son as well. He was, like, 13. So we all walked together. And as the day is progressing, it feels like just this never-ending Stairmaster. It took, it took about an hour and a half to go one mile. It's that bad and you were going higher and higher in altitude. So it's going up, oxygen's going down. No matter how much you try to move yourself, you can't move. And it's just a strange feeling because like, I'm in relatively good shape. The, the person that I was with was in relatively good shape, in great shape actually, and you can't move. Like you're trying so hard to move your legs and it's just underwater or on the moon. But as the day starts going on, he starts to fade really fast. So he starts getting a headache. Headache then turns to nausea. Nausea then turns worse. And I'm seeing this man who's like six foot seven just disintegrate and need to take breaks every 10 minutes and like starting to really get worried. So we uh, come to the realization that something's kind of wrong and luckily we ran into one of the Sherpas that were with us and we're like listen he's like listen you have to get you to safety because this is serious we think that you're starting to get mountain sickness and we have to get you off the mountain to the next tea house to safety so we're like well how long is that about six more hours of walking so the nightmare continues but we make it and you know, go over and the, the highest peak of Kailash is a place called Dharmala Pass where there's lots of prayer flags. And once you reach that, that's the highest where there's the least level of oxygen and people will cut their fingernails or cut pieces of their hair there as an act of like, this is a place of rebirth or it's like supposed to be really good luck. And uh, we are able to do that. And as we're going down, getting closer to safety, we finally get to the tea house. And the fact that it took us so long to do this journey was crazy to get to safety but it's even crazier because the time we arrived at the tea house our doctor friend Nitin happened to be there at the exact same time which is 
the chances of that are so slim. The percentage is not, not anywhere near the realm of reality. So Nitin takes a look at him and sees that his pupils are starting to dilate and that he's about to go into cerebral edema. And the needles that we almost didn't get, he had to get injected by, and Nitin wound up injecting him and basically saving his life. So he couldn't complete the rest of the pass. And for me, I, I felt so emotionally drained and invested in this person's safety that I wound up leaving and taking the ambulance with him off of the mountain as well. So we get him to safety. The next day happens. Everybody completes the Quora. They come to meet us. And we're just taking the day to kind of hang out. But in Tibet and China, like, everything's blocked. You can't watch movies. You can't even watch movies that you paid for. So like, how are we going to spend our day? So I go to one of the gift shops up the road and I happen to find playing cards. I'm like, I'm going to teach these Germans how to play poker. And it happened that the number of the deck that I got was 999. Weird. Okay. Whatever this means. So we spend the day playing poker and he's not feeling great, but then all of a sudden it starts to turn worse again. So he says, we should get Nitten to come in because this is getting bad. He was at, almost at death's door. So when Nitin came to check on him, he's like, you need to get off of this mountain. So he wound up having to be emergency evacuated, take an ambulance out of Tibet, back to an airport to take a helicopter back to Nepal to take a plane ride back to Germany before he died, basically. And it wasn't a joke. It wasn't an exaggeration. This person was about to die. And he's only 37 years old, there with his 13-year-old son had every intention of doing this, not just one time, but three times, and his third attempt at going is foiled. But what had happened was, apparently, the last time he had went to go, he started to get a little bit of altitude sickness, and if you have any signs of it, they say that you have to wait at least three years for your body to recalibrate, or else you'll get it really bad. So that's why it hit him, and that's why it hit him hard. So before he left Nepal to go back to Germany, he had said, like, I left a gift for you at the hotel because like we became very close friends and went through a lot and this is my gift to you so we have to backtrack from Tibet back to Nepal so basically the three days of driving 10 hour driving each day I had to do on my own just kind of processing everything that had happened but finally we get back fly back to Nepal get to the hotel and he had gotten me a statue of Green Tara. And Green Tara is believed to be the mother of all Buddhas and she's the Buddha of compassion and love. And I was just so taken aback by this gift and it's just beautiful, you know, like what a beautiful gesture. So Green Tara comes into my life now at this point. And this is where it gets weird. So from Nepal, we said goodbye to the majority of the rest of our travelers, but two of my other traveler friends and I decided to do an extension through Bhutan. In Bhutan, there's a monastery called Tiger's Nest, uh, which was believed to be Padma Sambhava's monastery, and it's built up in a mountain that takes you like four hours to climb up, and it's just like something out of a dream, like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, like how the hell did they build this monastery into a mountain? But there's, it's supposed to be the, the home or the heart of where Padmasambhava brought Buddhism all throughout Tibet and Asia. So we go, and after going through kind of what I'd describe as a hellacious journey through Tibet, getting to Bhutan was like a treat. 
everything there it was just so green and luscious and there's river stone everywhere so there's a shimmering on everything there's just like glittering and the people are so beautiful um, there's a very specific Bhutanese style so the men wear these skirts called goes which is basically like fabric folded a certain way where it almost looks like a long kilt and the fabrics are just out of this world beautiful and the women wear something called the kita um, which is similar but they wear a long sleeve shirt with the go higher up so we're like just taken aback by the style by the cleanliness by the welcoming it was so wonderful so our tour guide tells us about how there are certain monasteries where the monks will divine your fortune and me being somebody that's like the greatest thing you could tell that to it's like well can we do this please so he takes us to Bhutan's oldest monastery and I asked to get my fortune divined and he has to translate because they I don't speak the language and you know so this monk the way it works is I sit with the monk he gives you three dice to roll and then asks you your birthday and that's how your fortune is divined so I roll the three die and the number I get is 13 and I'm like oh Christ this is an unlucky number sucks no 13 for a woman to get is the luckiest number because 13 is the number of green Tara So the monk goes on to tell my guide that Green Tara is with me. She's always been protecting me, that I have permission to study Vajrayana Buddhism, to jump ahead into the path if I want to, that she's my fortune, and this whole Green Tara thing. So I tell my guide, I'm like, can you tell him that I was just gifted a Green Tara statue? And the monk was like, see, I told you. So the trip wraps up, and my one friend I had traveled with who knew the whole story of what had happened with the German and Green Tara and everything. This is a really funny synchronicity. He goes, do you realize the last photo that we took together, the last photo we took together, he had taken me to see Eve Ensler's play called In the Body of the World, which is amazing. But at the end, she allows everybody to go up on stage and take photos. And my friend and I posed, which I thought it was just a Buddha statue. He goes, no, you, we're posing together next to green Tara so I get home and I have to kind of give myself a few days after being gone for a month because straight after being gone for a month I have a week before I have to go to Costa Rica to go teach a workshop and it, the week was for women only the week was called majesty I'm like how fitting <laughs> such a majestic experience and the first night I arrived there um, because there were so many women I was a little concerned about being in ceremony with that much energy so I chose to take a place outside in the ceremony temple to do medicine work so I sit outside and they call everybody in and our shamans for the evening happen to be two German women cool like beautiful wonderful women that held an incredible ceremony but as the ceremony begins what music are they playing they're playing Tibetan chanting. Strange, this doesn't really happen as you're working with uh, like an Amazonian medicine. I've never been in ceremony with Tibetan chanting. And then in the middle of it, a woman ahead of me starts singing. So it wakes me up and I'm watching her and she's moving in this really beautiful, sacred movements. And she starts chanting the Green Tara Mantra. <laughs> which is Om Tare Tu Tare Ture Soha. 
And ever since the Green Tara came into my life, I've been doing that on my own just as a practice. And I'm like, are you serious that this is happening right now? So for about like 15 minutes, she's singing Om Tare Tu Tare Ture Soha. And then saying, I'm here with you. I've always been here with you. I love you. I'm like, what? So at the end of the night, I actually shared the Cliff's Notes version of my story to all the women that we were with. I said, whoever was singing Green Tara, thank you, because this is just so strange, and I can't believe that I chose to sit by you in this. She goes, wow. She goes, she's my master, and she told me I had no other choice but to sing. But ever since all of that happened, it's been really interesting, because for the last few years, I've been so deep in Egypt um, from my book for a mentee. And then he's an exploration and comparative religion, so it was not just Egyptian philosophy, it was like every wisdom tradition. But I'd always just scratched the surface of Buddhism. I never really dove deep into it. Um, so since I've been home, I've been studying Vajrayana Buddhism, and it's incredible because you know, my whole thing is living with a feather heart, but Vajrayana Buddhism teaches you how to live with a diamond mind the diamond vehicle and I feel like everything that happened along the way was preparation to understand these principles and bring them in and I don't subscribe to labels because I think that when you name something you negate it and it puts a container over something that can't be contained but it's a really supplemental philosophy to the path. Sitting on a log in this riverside park, Jin recounts her harrowing and enlightened experience, and I'm transfixed, focused on her story. When I feel something brush against my leg, it's nuzzling me. It's a dog from out of nowhere. I look down, there's three of them. What a great synchronicity. What's your name? My name's Ellen. Ellen, nice to meet you. I'm Jen. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Hi. Come on. Come on. How's that for a synchronicity? What just happened? <laughs> Can you describe what just We just met a lovely woman named Ellen and her three Lhasa Apsas who she had explained to us that Lhasa Apsas are believed to be the reincarnations of monks, Buddhist monks, that didn't finish their vows, so they don't get to come back as people, but they get to come back to listen to people teaching the Dharma. <laughs> Who also, Ellen, also lived in Nepal. <laughs> just got done telling me this great story, just also telling me that that specific dog runs around in the streets everywhere. And then I look down and this dog is just greeting me and all over me, wanting all sorts of the pets. And what a great way to like sort of end that story. <laughs> like a little bit of that just coming into 3D reality. Yeah. I think the fact that there was three of them is really interesting too. It's talking about 33 miles around the mountain, three times, three days to do the 33 miles. So what did Tesla say? Those who know the secrets to three, six, and nine know the secrets of the universe. I think that's what he said. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> Perhaps. 
<laughs> what a great what yeah no happens thank you for listening to this edition of euphemet to learn more about jen's work visit jennifersodini.com that's j-e-n-n-i-f-e-r-s-o-d-i-n-i.com there's information about her projects like evolve and ascend and her great oracle deck a beautiful and profound piece of work i'd like to thank audible and empty faces for their support please check out their offers in our show notes and take advantage of their involvement with euphemet Make sure to join us on Facebook. Our group, the Society of Euphemet, is where myself and listeners go to share their own experiences and talk about the show. Please join us. You can also follow us at Euphemet on social media and me at It's Jim Perry on Twitter and Instagram. Also, please remember to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. This has been Euphemet. I'm Jim Perry. Until next time, keep looking up.